Hi, this is Caleb. And this is Andrew. And welcome to our third episode of Iroquois History and Legends. As always, we're going to be starting off with our segment, Questions and Corrections. Okay, Caleb, our first question comes from Ivan, and he wanted to know how clan mothers got their position, because we explained how sachems were placed on the council, but how did a clan mother get her role? That's a good question, and it actually is good timing, too, because this upcoming episode, we're going to be talking a lot about the clan systems and clan mothers again. But uh, if you read online, this can be deceiving, but it, it says that it's a heretical position. And so a lot of us would think, okay, that means that it just passes down from mother to daughter, right? Not really, because it could have, but not necessarily. Because we're talking about a clan, so you got to remember, they look at the whole clan as being their family. Yeah. So obviously the next clan mother is going to come from the same clan, so it comes from the family. So in that sense, yes. But ultimately, how this would work is the clan mother would be kind of the oldest, wisest, you know, person that was the highest respected. And when it came time for her to either decide to step down or if she passed away, it, it tended to go to her next oldest sister. Yep. And if she didn't have, you know, an, an older sister, it would most likely go then to her oldest daughter but not always necessarily they could still choose on who they thought was the most qualified ultimately the decision came to the clan mother and ultimately she could pick whoever she thought would do the best job but it just tended to be her you know if you look at it it says her oldest sister and 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 so forth okay great we also had a question concerning the condolence ceremony now the question is, in a condolence ceremony, were they just grieving the 50 chiefs, or were they grieving everybody in all the nations? Yeah, like we talked about in the last episode, they would always start their council with the grieving ceremony, where they would exchange wampum and say words of, of condolence to one another. So the, the question is, let me get this straight, they're wondering if that ceremony is just if a chief had passed away, or would they do this just to honor people in their own nations back home? Well, in the Council of the Fifty, from what we've read and found, generally they just stuck to the sachems that had passed away since the last time they had met. Now, it's not to say that the condolence ceremony wasn't used. It was, it was integral part. It was used every time somebody passed. But that's where the clans come in, and we're going to talk about that in the episode also. Okay, and we had another question from our friend Curtis, and he was curious how borders worked. You have all these nations, not only the, the Iroquois five and six nations, but you have Algonquins and you have all these other Iroquoian people throughout all the Americas. You know, did they look at uh, boundary lines the same way we do, or how did that work? Um, not the same way we do. I mean, they did not have you know satellite maps like we did, obviously. But generally speaking, the area around the village was defined as their area. But you got to remember, the villages were set up, and then you had the farms stretching out, and then you had hunting land beyond that. And it's ill-defined what exactly covered hunting land. So that's where disputes kind of arose. If you saw somebody hunting in an area that was yours, there could be conflict because of that. But it was a lot of give and take, depending who was stronger and who had the better claim. But generally speaking, they used rivers and lakes as their general borders. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Iroquois people, like Andrew said, they would travel very long distances for hunting or trapping or even fishing, depending on the time of the year certain you know tribes or clans might move to a smaller area in the fishing season to to catch all their fish and then they may move back 
And a lot of times their hunting land could be hundreds of miles away Mm -hmm. where they could leave for long periods of time, sometimes even months hunting. So you'll find that a lot of these different nations may say that they have claimed to, to land that another nation says, no, that's our land. So yeah, they, for the most part, they tended to use lakes and rivers and kind of told the other people don't cross this line. But, uh, but it was kind of a gray area. In that. Yeah. And as we go along in the narrative, of course, we're going to talk about some of these conflicts and where the Iroquois did branch out to. So that'll be forthcoming. We hope you enjoy episode three. Long ago, the entire village used to mourn the death of a family member. Ceremonies and other important decisions were put off to mourn the death of a village member. The custom to postpone important decisions for the village caused problems for the village as regular business matters were set aside. For a long while, the village could not find a way that allowed the village to mourn the death of a village member as is custom and continue with the village's day-to-day matters. The leaders of the village were at an impasse. One day, a young man of the village decided that he would approach the leaders and offer his solution to the village's problem. He proposed that the leaders to send the eldest woman of the village down to the river to spend the night. The young man said to the leaders, Ask those women to make a fire near the river and spend the night. Ask them that, at first light, the following morning, pray to the Creator, and afterwards to take notice of the first animal that comes to the river. Once this happens, ask the woman to return to the village and tell you what they saw. The woman returned from the river late the following morning. They met with the leaders and they were asked to tell what they had seen. The first woman said she saw a turtle at the edge of the river. The second woman said she saw a wolf running along the river. And the third woman said she saw a bear feeding in the river on the rocks. The leaders then appointed the turtle, the wolf, and the bear clans to each family to the woman and it was decided that the family clan would pass through the mother's generation to generation as they have the creator's gift to create life. Now with the clans established, when one clan has a death in the family, one of the remaining clans would console the grieving clan, leaving the other clan to attend the village's ceremonies and important day-to-day business. Hi everybody, this is Caleb and Andrew, and welcome to episode 3 of Iroquois History and Legends, Family Matters. What you just heard was an Oneida legend used to tell the story on where the clan system came from. And that is what we're going to be digging into this episode, is the importance and how the clans worked. We talked about how the nation worked as a whole, now we're going to step back and do it on an individual level on each of the nations. Yeah. So the interesting thing there about that story is, Caleb, 
is they talked about how the clans were needed to be used to console one each other. We talked about when you had the Council of 50 last time that they would do a condolence ceremony for each person that had passed. Well, you got to remember that a clan was a tight-knit member of the family. So if one person in the clan died, all the people in that clan are mourning. And it's really hard to get anything done. You know, if you're grieving the loss of a loved one, you can't go out and farm or hunt, or even you don't want to do anything. You just want to mourn. And like we said, in uh, in the, the meeting of the 50 sachems at their councils, these mourning rituals would take sometimes a couple days just to mourn several people. So if it's your culture to mourn for long periods of time for each person that passes away, you know, the story is bringing the question, how do we get the, how do we hunt and gather and, you know, live our day-to-day lives when we're always in mourning? Yeah, the proverb of, you know, we bear one another's burdens comes to mind. So another clan would go and be able to comfort that clan that was grieving, and then another clan can carry on the work and keep going. So they're all working together and lifting each other up when they're going through this grieving process. And like you said, you know, have you ever had somebody that you care about pass away? You can't just get over it in a couple days. It's a long, drawn-out experience that it takes to, to go through those motions and cultural things that you need to do to get to a place where you can take a breath and carry on. Mm-mm. All right, now I want to back up a second, Caleb, and what did the clan mother, other than appointing somebody as a sachem to sit on the council, did she have any responsibility beyond that? What was she in charge of? Yeah, actually, the clan mother, on top of appointing who the chiefs would be, they also had a very, very long list of responsibilities back in their own clans. For one... The clan mother would actually be the person that would own the longhouse and all the furnishings of it. All the children born in that clan became her responsibility. All the clan lands, she ultimately had the decision on what it would be used. Distributing food, you have to remember that uh, the men would hunt and the women would, would plant and sow seeds and gather. So that would all come into a kind of communal, you know, storage. It would be dried and processed, and then she would distribute it evenly across the board for those that need it. Also, like we said in the last one, they had the right to nominate sachems, confirm them, and also dispose them if they weren't doing a good job. Uh, They also could adopt foreigners and prisoners. If you were a war chief and you went out, you couldn't just steal a woman and say okay she's going to be my wife the clan mother had to approve her to be adopted into your family they also had the ability to decide who would go to war and who wouldn't so if a young a young warrior wanted to go to war if she didn't think he was mature enough she could say that he's not going yet i can see that playing out young guy like grandma please and she'd be like no i can just picture that playing out even today you've got some (laughs) snippy 18 year old that wants to join the marines and the mother's not having it or even 13 year old i want to go off with daddy and and become a great warrior Uh, no you're not old enough yet they also had the power to grant life or death to prisoners and this was very common uh population was so thin back then that it was very common practice where they could grant life to prisoners and adopt them into their families Uh, So you see that all the time, and that that decision came down to the clan mothers. Also, the power to maintain the natural resources. So you remember, you have, you know, 100 or maybe more people living in this area. You're going to deplete 
the resources around the area relatively quickly. And every, I think they believe like around every 15, 20 years, they would actually pick up and move the longhouse and build it somewhere else because they believe that a lot of times they'd cleared all the trees around and it was getting too hard to carry the firewood. So they would manage the natural resources and they would also decide where the burial grounds were going to be. So pretty much they were in charge of almost everything. Yeah, that's what it looks like here. I can't think of much more things besides that. On, uh... Now, why did they view women in such high regard, Caleb? I mean, in our culture, we come from a, a male, predominantly dominated society, even though we don't want to admit it, but predominantly many decisions have men in power still today. Why did they view the women as capable of being in charge of this? Kendra, okay, I have a quote here from Doug Canantillo. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that, but he gives uh, a simple paragraph explanation on why women and the clan mothers have this important role in their society. Quote, In our society, women are the center of all things natural. We believe he, the creator, has given women the ability to create. Therefore, it is only natural that the woman be in positions of power to protect this function. We trace our clans through women. A child born into the world assumes the clan's membership of its mother. Our young women were expected to be physically strong. So pretty much they're viewing it as a woman is the one that grows the child inside her, cares for it, gives birth to it, brings it up, and so why shouldn't the women who are mothers of us all be in charge of protecting us from dangers. She's older, wiser, and has fostered all these children. So in their mindset, of course, why wouldn't the women be in charge of everything? <laughs> it's also good because they don't have the testosterone. that Men tend to make some rash decisions once testosterone starts flowing, and uh, women don't always have to worry about that. Probably another reason why they had in their constitution that you had to sleep on it at night whenever you made a, a big decision on anything. Mm-hmm. All right, Caleb, so last time we had mentioned that the, there were sachems, and then the clan mothers appointed sachems to the different seats on the council, but we also mentioned that it was unevenly proportioned, right? Yeah, some some nations had eight, some had nine, some had ten. I think the Anadagi, didn't they have 13 or 14? 14, 14? I think. Yeah. Now, the same is true with the clans. Interestingly enough, there were different amounts of clans in all the different nations. For example, the Mohawk and Oneida had three general clans, but then the Seneca had eight. So a lot of people think that, okay, well, there were, that makes sense. There were eight different clans for the Seneca, and so there were eight clan mothers, and so they appointed eight sachems. Yeah, that makes sense. Except when you think about it, you're like, well, wait, the Oneida and the Mohawk, they had, they had three clans, but they had nine clan mothers each. How does that play out? Hmm. Well, I'll answer it for you. Oh, thank you, because yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, each clan was represented by a different animal, right? Did you know that? Yeah. So I'm going to list some of them here. So some were the wolf, the bear, turtle, snipe, deer, beaver, heron, hawk, slash eagle, they didn't differentiate, and eel. But not all the tribes had all those, and some just had a few. So like I said, there was wolf, bear, and turtle for the Mohawk and Oneida. However, they also had sub-clans where you might have the red wolf, the gray wolf, and the timber wolf. Or you might have three different turtles, a snapping turtle, a mud turtle, a painted turtle. Or you could have a brown bear, a black bear, and a yearling bear clan. 
So if you do simple math, three times three equals nine. So if you had three subclans, three times three made nine, and that's where you got the Oneida and the Mohawk. Okay, that makes sense. So again, from the story, you can see the point of the clans is to share grief with one another. When one people is grieving, the other clans can step up and do work or console the people while they're going through the grief process. Because, you know, like we said, it's very hard to get any work done when you're dealing with a family member who's died, especially if you're part of a clan. You're talking about people, these are their close relatives. These are cousins, uncles, brothers, sisters, grandparents. Okay, like we talked about in the different nations and how you had the older brothers and the younger brothers and how they had the responsibility to mourn with each other. They have a similar thing set up here for clans. This is off the Oneida website, but it says that the wolf clan is an uncle to the bear clan and the turtle is the cousin of the wolf and then the turtle is the older brother to the bear. So that's kind of like when we play the game rock, paper, scissors, you know, one is always over the other. So in a mourning sense, they would always know whose responsibility it was to take care of the other. Mm -hmm. Just like in the story that we read earlier, how the, the other clan would come and help with the mourning of the tribe that was sad. That way, you know, they, they'd have somebody to still be running their day-to-day -day lives in their clan. Okay, very cool. So let's talk about a bit, Caleb, how they related to each other. So they're all related, right? Everybody in the Wolf Clan, let's say if you're in the Seneca Nation, everybody in the Wolf Clan is related. Is that right? Well, the way they looked at it as being related, yes. But the way we might look at it as being related, maybe not. Uh, one thing that, you know, a lot of people are interested going to worry, you got a hundred people inside the Bear Clan and they can only marry somebody in the Bear Clan. It seems like that's, you know, a pretty dangerous thing to do as far as genetics, wouldn't it be? Yes. Now, they didn't maybe they didn't understand genetics exactly how we do, but I have a feeling they probably figured out that it's probably not best to be marrying your immediate family relatives. And that's why it was a huge, we're talking huge taboo. You can't marry anybody in your clan. You've got to go and marry somebody from a different clan to keep things split up. Right, Caleb? Yeah, but how would that work? Now, say I'm in the bear clan and, and you know, this lovely ladies in the turtle clan, and we marry... Uh, whose clan do our kids fall under? Well, you know, generally speaking, when you get married, the wife takes your name. Not quite so with the Haudenosaunee. You would go and move into your wife's family's house. Doesn't that sound great? Uh, I feel like that they might want to do a little research before they marry anybody if they have to go. So you're saying they actually have to leave their house and they have to go move in with their wife and her entire extended family. That's correct. It sounds like the setup to some romantic comedy. <laughs> and so you go over there. Now, you don't change your clan affiliation. So think of it as you still get to keep your last name. However, all of your kids are born into your wife's clan. So, so like we said when we were reading down the list, how all the children fall under the care and protection of the clan mother... You know, they have two mothers now. They have their immediate mother, and then they also have their clan mother. And aunts and everything else. And actually, they viewed, as crazy as it sounds, they viewed your maternal uncles as more of an influence or just as much as your biological father. Really? Yeah, <laughs> as crazy as it sounds. Now, we mentioned how that works, you know, if you're in the Seneca Nation. But what if I see someone, what if I'm in the Bear Clan, and I go over to the Oneida, and I see a girl from the Bear Clan. Well, it's a different nation, right? So sure. It's a, the, you know, these people live 20, 30, you know, miles away, maybe further. So, and you're not blood relatives at all. So it seems like, you know, we, 
in, in Western culture, we would probably encourage people or, or even in like biblical times, you would go and marry somebody from your same ancestry and try to try to marry somebody from your same tribe. But it was still a huge no-no. Really? Yeah. They viewed, if you were part of a clan, it didn't matter which nation you belonged to, they still viewed you as brothers and sisters. So just because you were from the Seneca and you went maybe all the way over to the Mohawk, you couldn't marry somebody from the same clan that you belonged to. It was a, nope, doesn't happen. So it didn't even enter their thought. They would think of it as incestuous. Now, the interesting thing about that is, again, it makes sense from a sociological aspect because you've got all this crossbreeding. You have people intermarrying with different clans and different nations, and so it's strengthening those ties to allow you to be stronger and have more social uh, networks, so to speak. And like we said in the list of the responsibilities of the clan mother, you'd have to go to her for approval for your marriage. And one of the biggest responsibilities was they would research who your spouse was, and they'd kind of, you know, kind of like if, if you're Catholic, you need a bat, they need to see your baptismal certificate before they can agree to marry you. I married a Catholic, so they, they needed to see all of this information from me before they would agree to let me be married in the church. It was a similar thing. They looked at this and they said, okay, you want to marry this woman? Okay, we want to see some sort of proof that she's from an opposite clan. We need... This, we need her clan mother to basically vouch for her that you know she's one of her children before we can set this marriage up. Mm-hmm. Now, the other cool thing about clans is, Caleb, when you go to another town or another state, do you generally go into the town and uh, open up a phone book and just uh, look for the last name Cotter and knock on the door and say, hey, I'm here? <laughs> yeah, you, uh, we hunt about an hour south of where we live, so I can just imagine driving down to Dansville and looking up or, or even whoever's Irish, you know, looking up Irish names saying, okay, here's my family, giving them a call. But that's what they did. So if you were traveling to another nation or maybe another village in your nation, the crazy thing is on these longhouses, they had painted signs with the clan picture, right? So if you were a bear clan, they had a picture of a bear painted on the outside. And why did they have that, Caleb? Well, because uh, like we talked about earlier with the with hunting and trapping and fishing, very far away, certain nations might have a better, you know, say for example, the Seneca might have better whitetail population, you know, but, uh, you know, somebody else further up to Lake Ontario might have a better fishing population. So you would, because they were all separate nations, but they all looked at each other's family, sometimes you get nations moving over to to other brother nations to hunt and fish. And when, when they would do that, they didn't carry tents or thing, or have hotels to check into. So they needed places where they could stay. Unfortunately, you've got a family in every village you go to. Exactly. Because they belong to your clan. So you just show up, you walk into the village, and, oh, I'm a bear. Oh, there's the bear house. And you just walk in and say hi to everybody, and they give you food and put you up. Yeah, they'd be required to, to take care of you and welcome you as if you were a real family. Because you were, in yeah. their eyes, Amen. again. And probably also they didn't have to worry about you getting hinky with their daughters or anything because <laughs> you were a member of the family. Well, there's a lot of eyes in there. I don't think there's anything inappropriate going on in there. <laughs> so when you think about that, just think of you've got these unified nations and people are going back and forth and mingling with each other. It really seems like that this was a great way to build relationships with one another. Yeah, when you first hear it, it sounds kind of kind of crazy, but but the more you look into it, it worked for a long time. Can you imagine no matter what town you go to, you've got somebody that'll just, you can just show up at their door. They got a sign out front that, you know, has a, <laughs> has an eel painted on it. And you're like, oh, how great. 
That's awesome. Okay, just like how we talked about different nations having different titles, such as the Seneca being the keepers of the western door, or the Mohawk being the keepers of the eastern door, the Onondaga being the fire keepers. Different clans also had different titles and uh, kind of responsibilities in their society. For example, the Turtle Clan was known as the keepers of knowledge, and they'd have the responsibility with things that have to do with the environment. And the Wolf Clan would be known as the Pathfinders, and they had a responsibility to guide people in uh, living their lives the way the Creator intended. And the Bear Clan were known as the keepers of the medicine. They would be taught generation to generation which herbs to mix and things like that. So I thought that was kind of neat that each clan had their own kind of, you know, I'm sure that each clan had a general knowledge of all these things, but I thought it was interesting how certain ones kind of had a you know, special emphasis mm-hmm. on those aspects. So I've got some other interesting things here, Caleb. Um, have you ever heard of the extinct clans? Uh, like extinct animals, extinct clans? Well, no, I've not heard of those. Well, there are clans that are no longer in existence. And these clans have not been in existence for a long time. Uh, tradition says that when the Peacemaker came, these clans did away with. So I'm going to name a few of them, and you tell me if you think you'd like to join some of these clans. There was the Rock Clan, and then you had the Ball Clan. <laughs> I guess they rolled away. I don't know what happened to them. And then you had the, uh, this is my favorite one, if I had to pick uh, a clan, I would join the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. <laughs> These, the interesting thing is, you know, these are not found anywhere in Haudenosaunee now. And like I said, at the time of the Peacemaker, it says that they did away with them. But if you look at the Cherokee, they do have a wild sweet potato clan. And the Huron have a rock clan. So we can see that going back many, many centuries, that these clans most likely did exist. Because the Cherokee and the Huron are both Iroquoian people. people. Yes. So I found that very interesting. So... I don't know. If anybody wants to rekindle the Sweet Potato Clan, let me know. But I can just picture somebody painting a sweet potato on the side of my longhouse or something what like that. What does a sweet potato look like? It's a yam. Yeah, I know. But how do you tell the difference from a normal potato and a sweet potato? Maybe that's why they did away with it. They couldn't differentiate between a yam, a rock, and a ball. They all look the same. That's what I'm thinking. Now, I wanted to um, double back on adoption really quick. So we mentioned how war parties go out. They capture people in a raid and they'll bring them back to the village and they'll make them literally run a gauntlet. So they'll have all the people in the village set up on two rows and they're there with their fists and their clubs and they're leading everybody down and they beat them and make them run a gauntlet. Meanwhile, the clan mother, right, Caleb, is there judging everything, seeing who they think should be adopted into their tribe. Because sometimes people die from illnesses, somebody's lost a child. This could be a replacement in their eyes of somebody Right, Caleb? Yeah, they could also look and see if they could see one of these people who they're captured. They look at them and just see how angry they are. They might think, hey, we're obviously not going to you know, get this person to join us. They'll probably try and kill us or escape first opportunity they get. So these are the type of things the clan mothers are watching for. They could also look to see if they're brave and could had a good sense of character about them. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the men were not killed. Yeah, in their culture... Uh, it said a lot about you if you could take the torture and the killing with honor and dignity. Yeah. And you were expected to. That people would kind of look at you. If you're screaming and, and, and you know trying to escape, that everybody might look at you like, look at this coward. 
We've captured him fair and square. He should just take the torture and die like, you know, like a good, strong man should. And they would respect you for it. Yeah. But I don't want to get too much into torture (laughs) because, unfortunately, we may have to cover this at a later time. But there's not some good stuff that it was not a good end, Mm -hmm. generally, from our perspective on what would happen. But as you were adopted, the interesting thing is they didn't um, they didn't discriminate. They didn't care that you were from another place. And as Europeans get interwoven in the story, we're going to find that French people, English people, Dutch people, American people are going to be captured in raids and taken back and raised. And there's many people that are raised totally in the culture and were considered part of the the clan or tribe, a nation. Here's a cool little thing about that, Andrew. When some of the first settlers were coming over here and they were meeting some of these, these Indian nations, they actually came across black Indians, you know, Indians with African descent. And what was happening was uh, the slave, slavery at the time wasn't really big in America yet, but as, as early as 1502, there were slave ships that were at least coming up the American coast to transport slaves. And when they would stop there, sometimes the, the, the Africans would escape into the woods in which case they would be adopted by the Native Americans. Yeah, I read some, in, a, in a book that they found some graves and they did DNA testing. And they tested it from like 1590 to 1605 was the carbon dating. And they checked and the guy was African, which is just mind boggling. And he was there in a grave with everybody else. But yeah, he had been adopted and buried along with. So yeah, they did not discriminate black, white, or someone from another native tribe, or mixed. They considered you part of their family. Yeah, they, they realized that everyone was human and everyone had, you know, s- the same similarities created by the same creator. Uh, so discrimination didn't quite work the same way that, that we kind of look at it today. Yeah, and as the narrative goes, we're going to find people that are half Dutch, people that are fully white, they're leaders. There's even one chief that I think he was black was a a war chief, you know, we're going to find in the story. So get ready. There's going to be some really interesting characters that are coming up. So we hope you've enjoyed us talking about the clan system today on a local level. Next week, Caleb, we're going to go into talking about how their general, how they survived, how they hunted, fished, farmed, trapped, all those kinds of things. Yes, next week will be the third episode in this three-part series we're doing. We figured we would do three episodes to kind of explain a little bit about the Haudenosaunee, so that, you know, we're talking about the history of them in the upcoming episodes, but if you don't really understand where they lived, how they lived, what they were like, what their government was, the history will kind of be lost. So next week will be our third episode, and yes, we're going to be talking about hunting and fishing and gathering and their technology. So then we'll kind of cover the three basic, you know, areas of their life and And culture. And you really want to listen to it because there's some. they had some really innovative things on how they did all these things. It was not as you picture in the movies with the single lone Indian with the little bow and arrow stalking, through, stalking the woods. through the woods with a deer. It was not like that. Nor was it like just randomly going out and picking wild raspberries, which they did. But they were much more advanced than simple hunter-gatherers that people view like Stone Age people doing. Yeah, they had some great hunting techniques and some pretty interesting technology that, uh, that some people even use to this day. 
So we're going to be exploring that in the next episode, and I hope you will join us. And please like us on Facebook. Remember to leave any comments there or, or questions so that we can get them on our next segment of questions and corrections. Andrew, what's the Facebook and email at? You can search for us on Facebook at Iroquois History and Legends, or you can send us an email to longhousepodcast at gmail.com. We also have a crude website that we're hoping to work on building, but it's iroquois.weebly.com. And don't forget to, uh, please, if you like the show, we'd really appreciate it. We don't want any money, but if, if you really like the show, we'd really appreciate it if you leave us some iTunes reviews so that we get bumped in the ratings. Uh, that That's all we ask. We, we do this because we love it, not because we're looking to make any money off it. Mm-hmm. If you don't have iTunes or you listen to us through another site, you're off the hook. Don't worry about that. But we do appreciate the comments and things that you've left us on Facebook. So thank you so much. See you guys next week.